We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Pray that your first experience with Emmaus would just be a blessing and an encouragement for your life and that it would draw you closer to Jesus Christ and your relationship with him. I do have one announcement to make, and it's a really cool announcement. Uh, Join us for South Asia Night. It's Friday, July 8th at 6.30 p.m. in the Emmaus Loft upstairs. Um, At this event, the B family will share about uh, what the Lord is doing, his work in South Asia, and how they'll be soon transitioning there to join that work. So please come and, and hear about how you, as a member of Emmaus Church, uh, can support the B family in that. And this includes kids. Uh, parents, there will not be child care for the event, um, but consider what it would mean to bring your kids to this South Asia night and to expose them to what the Lord is doing around the globe, how the gospel is going forth to the nations to impact people for the glory of Jesus Christ. So that's South Asia night, Friday, July 8th at 6.30 p.m. in the Emmaus Loft. We continue this morning uh, on our series about the attributes of God, the attributes of God. And we come to this, not as people so much wanting to study a subject, as if we could master this as a subject, but we, we want to come to this this morning as people wanting to grow in our knowledge of the Lord so that our relationship with him can deepen, so we can worship him knowing more truly who he is as the God whose ways are higher than our ways, whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So to that end, I want to invite you to turn with me to James chapter 1, where we'll begin this morning. James chapter 1. As you're turning there, I want to start by asking you a question. When was the last time you knew that your life had changed in a dramatic way? Think about that for a second. When was the last time you thought to yourself, wow, my life will never be the same again? We all have moments like that in our lives, don't we? Moments that mark a profound and lasting change. Like there was your life before that moment, and then there was your life after that moment. For me, the the last time I experienced this was when we moved to Kansas City earlier this year. We were driving into town, and I had a a car that was just chock full of like odds and ends from our life. All the stuff that didn't make it on the moving truck. We even had our dog in the car, so I had like animals in my car. We looked like the the clampets rolling into Beverly Hills, you know? I was driving north on 71, and I could see the buildings. It just hit me like, wow, nothing will, will ever be the same again. Everything has just changed. It felt really real, you know, the newness of everything. For many of you guys, that's what comes to mind when you think about change. Change is accompanied by a sense of adventure. It means new opportunities, new relationships, new life lessons and experiences. There's an excitement to it, right? The thought of it energizes you. For others of us, 
Her experience of change hasn't been that way. It's not exciting. No, it's been painful. The last time you thought to yourself, my life will never be the same again, it's because it felt like your whole world was falling apart. You had whiplash because suddenly everything was going wrong. Nothing was right. A relationship that you had built your life around was suddenly ending. A person that you dearly loved had suddenly passed away. A career that you had spent your life working toward was suddenly just wiped off the table. Whatever it was for you, change is not an adventure. Change is not exciting. Change is a burden. It's a source of grief. It's a trial to be endured. Yes, change means different things to different people. But I think there's one thing we can all agree about. And it's that change is inevitable. It's an unavoidable reality of life. So I think that as a rule... Every personal biography, like the biography of every person sitting in this room right now, should end with a footnote that reads, subject to change. And yet, as we'll see today, there is one exception to that rule. There is one biography that does not need a footnote like that. The scriptures remind us of this time and time again. You know, for us, life is a continual process of fluctuation, of seasons coming and going, of ebbs and flows, of ups and downs. But for God, there is no process like that. And it's because He is unlike us. That's really what this series on the attributes of God is about. It's about the ways that God is not like you. Let's look at James chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 12. Our main focus will be on verse 17. So James chapter 1, starting in verse 12. James writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in these verses we're being told that no matter how well you think you're doing in the Christian life, trials are going to come and they are going to test your steadfastness. 
you are going to be severely tempted. And when that happens, when you are tempted, you need to recognize that that temptation does not come from above. It comes from within. James is saying this because he wants us not to waver. Like when things take a turn for the worse, James wants us to remain faithful. Because that's the entire goal of the Christian life, is it not? To faithfully endure in Christ so that in the end, you can receive the crown of life. And Until then, we can be sure we're going to face our share of trials. That's why James is so strenuously warning us. But James isn't only warning us. He gives us more than warnings. He also sets before us a doctrine. It's a doctrine about the nature and character of God. It's a doctrine that we can hold on to. Like when crisis shows up on your doorstep, you can bank everything on this eternal truth. And it's the truth that even in the most dire circumstances you will ever face, you can be sure that every good gift and every perfect gift, all that you need to remain faithful through that trial, it is all coming down from above. Yes, your life may be shrouded in darkness at this moment, but the storehouses of heaven have not been shut to you. And this is the case. We can say this is true because our God, the Father of lights, does not He does not change. That's the doctrine that James is giving us. That's what he's telling us to hold on to. It's the doctrine that our God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this God is eternally unchanging. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. I want you to see that the God who watches over your life is the same yesterday, today, forever. The God who watches over your life is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'll unpack this with two points. Let's look at the first one. Point number one, every moment of your life is lived under the watchful eye of the Father of lights. Every moment of your life is lived under the watchful eye of the Father of lights. We must not allow ourselves to be deceived about this. That's what James tells us. Verse 16, he says, Don't be deceived so as to think that your temptation, that temptation that you're facing, that temptation that you're struggling with, it doesn't come from God. It didn't come from him. He's not double-minded like that. He didn't change his mind about you as if he would give you good and perfect gifts one moment and then turn right around and give you temptation the next moment. No, this is the father of lights we're talking about. And by father of lights, James means, this is what commentators tell us, James means that God is the maker of the heavenly lights, the moon, the stars, the planets. Galaxies, comets, black holes, nebula. He created them all from nothing. He is watching over them. He is caring for them by his good providence. This means that the lights in the sky above your head 
They do the bidding of our God. They obey his every command. I mean, think about the rising of the sun in the east and the setting of the sun in the west. The fact that this happens every day, it reveals his power and his majesty. It reveals his glory. This is what Psalm 19 says. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech about our God and night to night reveals the knowledge of him. So basically the Bible from Psalm 19 to James 1, it's telling us, hey, do you want to know who God is? Do you want to know what he's like? Well, then all you need to do is look up. Look up and you will see that he is the father of lights. He is the maker of that marvelous expanse above your head, which stretches from horizon to horizon. And he intimately cares for every light that you see in that expanse. Psalm 147 verse 1, or verse 4 rather. It tells us that he knows each of those lights by name. Because he cares for each of them. He cares for every one of them. So if you want to know who God is, if you want to know what he is like, look up. Look up at the heavenly lights and they will teach you about the Lord, our God, the creator of heaven and earth. That's what Abraham did. Abraham looked up. God had given Abraham a promise. Through your son Isaac, I will multiply you. I will make of you a great nation, and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That was God's promise to Abraham. And then in Genesis 22, God reconfirms this promise to Abraham in a unique way. He comes to Abraham in the middle of the night, and he tells him, Abraham, look up for a second. Do you see those stars in the sky? Try to count them for a second. Try to number them. And as Abraham looked, it became evident very quickly that the stars were beyond counting. Remember, remember, there was no light pollution in that time. So the sky was just crystal clear. It was like someone took a, a handful of salt and threw it against a wall of wet black paint so the, the salt sticks there. I mean, just, just thousands and thousands of stars visible to the naked eye. And God says to Abraham, listen, if I can make all of this, if I can hang all these lights in the night sky, then I can keep my promise to you that your offspring will outnumber those lights. They will outnumber those stars. And with that, Abraham's faith was strengthened. In that moment, he knew that God was, was watching over his promise and God could be trusted to see it through. Because Abraham looked up. He looked up. The psalmist also looked up. In Psalm 8, he stands in awe of the glory of the heavens and he prays, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Friends, what a profound truth. What a glorious truth. Thing. And it's, it's the truth that we need to hold dear. That every single moment of your life is lived under the watchful eye of the Father of lights. 
If you ever forget that, if you ever need reminding, then all you need to do is look up. Look up at the heavens. But even as I'm saying this, even as I make this astounding claim, I realize that some of us might have trouble believing it. You might be having trouble here. At the beginning, I asked you how you experienced change, and maybe that question struck a nerve for you because you came into this place struggling. You came struggling to accept some of the changes that have taken place in your life. Maybe you're looking at what's come of your life, and you're wondering, man, does God really care? Does he really love me? With the way things have been going lately, I'm not so sure anymore. I used to think he cared. I used to think he loved me, but it feels like somewhere along the line, he changed his mind. Well, if that's what you're thinking, stick with me a moment longer. Consider what James says next. He tells us that when it comes to this father of lights, this is what it says in verse 17, when it comes to this father of lights, there is no variation or shadow in him due change. So with this, James is pointing out that just as the sun in the sky shows us what God is like, so the shadows that the sun casts on the ground show us what God is not like. And this makes sense, right? I mean, as the sun moves throughout the sky during the course of the day, the shadows that it casts, they change in their shape and in their size and in their position. And James is saying, look, God does not do that. The Lord is not like that. Shadows are constantly shifting, but not the Father of lights. He is unchanging in every way. Never shifting. Never becoming anything other than what He is eternally. So Just listen to what it says in Psalm 102. It says, the heavens, it says of God, the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you are the same. Your years have no end. The psalmist is saying that creation had a starting point. It began somewhere. Creation also has a destined end. Between the beginning and the end, the created order will change. It will decay. <clears throat> it will wear out. But God is not like his creation. He is unchanging. He is eternal. And even when creation in its present form passes the way, the Lord our God will eternally be just as he has always been. This is what makes him the God who is worthy of our trust. You can trust him to care for you in any circumstance, no matter how much your life changes, because you can be sure that he will not change. That's the second point I want to make today. That the father of lights is perfect and unchanging in his care for you. The father of lights is perfect and unchanging in his care for you. We can say this with confidence because the Lord has told us that he is perfect and unchanging in his own nature and character. He's what theologians call an immutable being. God is immutable. 
meaning that he doesn't change. He swears by this in the book of Malachi when he says, I, the Lord, do not change. He can say this on the basis that he is, like I said at the beginning, he is not like us. He is not like us. We are constantly changing because we are mutable creatures, but not the Lord, not our God. He is an immutable creator. He is nothing like the shifting shadows on the ground beneath your feet. No, in him, there is no shadow. There is no variation whatsoever because he doesn't change. Let's look at this from another angle. Let's move from shadows to rocks. Throughout the scripture, we're told that God is our rock. The biblical authors say this over and over, and to understand why they say it over and over, all we need to do is think about one of the main qualities of a rock, that it is virtually immutable. Like you can sit and you can watch the shadows change, but you cannot sit and watch a rock change. You'll be sitting there for a very long time. No, rocks are some of the most immutable objects in all of creation. That's why David can say in Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock. It's why Hannah can say in 1 Samuel chapter 2, there is no rock like our God. It's why the prophet Isaiah tells us, trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Yes, this is true, friends. The Lord is our rock, and it's because in his nature and in his character, he is immutable. He does not change. And yet, at the same time, we have to be kind of careful here. We have to be careful. Yes, we should joyfully confess with the biblical authors that God is our rock, but we should also distinguish what we mean by that from what we don't mean by it. The confession of God as our rock also comes with a recognition. It comes with the recognition that rocks, by their very nature, are inactive. They're inactive. They're inanimate objects. Sure, they're immutable. But their immutability means they don't do anything. It's a restrictive immutability. That's not true of God. He is never restricted. We should never think of him that way. Instead, we should believe that he is gloriously active and alive at all times, always working, always speaking, always moving. One theologian says this, God is unchangeable, not because he is inert or static like a rock, but for the opposite reason. He is so dynamic, so active, that no change can make him more active. Pastor Matthew says in his book, None Greater, that, not, that, that only an immutable God can be supremely alive, active, and vibrant. Were he to change, we would have no assurance that his vitality would continue or that his, his vibrancy would remain pure and perfect. So, in order for God to truly be an immutable being, we believe he must be immutably active, never ceasing to bless you, 
never ceasing to love you, always caring for your every need. He never needs to adjust how active he is in your life. Friends, this doctrine of God's immutability, it is essential. It is what sinners and sufferers like us need to hear today. We need to receive this because it addresses some of the greatest challenges we will ever face in the Christian life. This goes back to what we read in James chapter 1. When we're tempted to sin, when life changes and when it brings trials and when the genuineness of our faith is being tested by that, we need to rest our souls upon an unchanging God. We need to be able to cast ourselves upon the God who is the rock who does not move. In Him there is no variation. There is no shadow. So before I conclude today, I want to offer four propositions about God's immutability. Four propositions. These four propositions are essential for Christian belief because without them, we would be contradicting what God has said about himself. But not only that, without these four propositions being true, the nature of our relationship with God would be totally in question. So these are incredibly Incredibly important for Christian belief and practice. We need these propositions. So here they are. Proposition number one. God is the perfect being. God is the perfect being. Anselm of Canterbury was a, a Christian thinker from the 11th century. And he once said that God is the being than which nothing greater can be conceived. What does he mean by that? Anselm is saying, like, if you were trying to dream up, you're trying to envision a being more perfect than the God of the Bible, you would fail. Like, you wouldn't be able to do it. You would be entirely unsuccessful. And, and the scriptures certainly give us plenty of evidence for this. Just one example, Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, he says, this rock... His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Nothing better, nothing greater, nothing more perfect than the Lord our God can be imagined by mortal minds. In his nature, in his character, in his being and his words and his works, he is totally flawless. He is perfection itself. So that's the first proposition. God is the perfect being. The second proposition. God's perfection means he cannot change. God's perfection means he cannot change. We often like to talk about someone or something having potential. I remember being in high school, and I had a teacher who was really exasperated by me. And she wagged her finger at me, and she said, young man, you are wasting your potential. She wasn't wrong. <laughs> she wasn't wrong. I mean, I was a goof-off, right? I, I was not a good student. I didn't take much of anything seriously. But my teacher could say that to me because I, as a mutable creature, have potential to become something better or worse than I currently am. 
But no such potential exists in God. No such potential exists in him. In order for him to be eternally perfect, he must be unchanging. Because for him to change would mean one of two things. That he is either perfect now and needs to change in order to become perfect. Or that he is now perfect and by changing becomes something less than perfect. Let me say that again because I think I confused myself with it. God is either imperfect now and needs to change in order to become perfect, or he is now perfect and by changing becomes something less than perfect. But no perfection could ever be added to God. No perfection could ever be subtracted from him. He cannot be acted upon by anything outside of him so as to alter who he is in some way. No, he is unfailingly immutable in his own being. And if he were anything less than that, he would not be the perfect God that we know and worship. So that's the second proposition. God's perfection means he cannot change. There is no potential in him because he is already perfect. The third proposition. God must be eternally perfect and unchanging in order for us to be assured of his care. He will be faithful and true in the ways that he cares for us. How can we be sure that God won't change his mind? How can we be sure that for us, things won't reach the point in the Christian life where we've sinned and failed and messed up so badly that God says, you know what? This is getting to be a little much. I think, I think I'm going to head out. How can we be sure that it won't reach that point? It all goes back to what we're talking about. God's immutability. His promise to care for us is true because he, as the promise maker, is unchangeable. This is how we know that his promises will remain, that even in our darkest hour, the Father of lights will not fail us. He is watching over us, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This means that he will always be our shepherd and we will always be his flock. He will always be our father and we will always be his children. He will always be our king and we will always be citizens of his kingdom. He will always be our redeemer and we will always be his treasured possession. He will always be our God and we will always be his people. Listen to me, friends. Because God is immutably himself, we are immutably his. And this goes to the very heart of the gospel that we believe. Because the gospel tells us that we belong to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing can change our standing with the Father. That's what the scriptures drive home to us over and over again. That's what we need to hear over and over again. So this leads us to our fourth proposition. And I'll close with this. Proposition number four. As the ultimate act of his perfect and unchanging care, God came to us in the flesh. God came. Came in the flesh. We see this in John chapter 1. 
Verse 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So if the word is with God, if the word is God, it stands to reason that whatever could be said of God should also be said of the word. So if we can say God is immutable, we should also be able to say that the word is immutable, right? But then verse 14 happens, and John tells us that this immutable word became flesh, dwelled among us. I don't know about you, but immediately this sounds like a problem to me. Because we've just spent the last several minutes being convinced that, hey, God does not change. There is no potential in God. He cannot become anything than what he eternally is. And then we look here at John chapter 1 and we see the Bible telling us that God became something. And he became flesh. What does that mean? What's with that? Does it mean that in order to affirm God's immutability, we need to deny the incarnation? Or does it mean that to affirm the incarnation, we need to deny God's immutability? Is there any way for this to be resolved? Is there any way for, for God the immutable to also be God the incarnate? The good news is that I think there is. There is, and it all begins by going back to one of the central doctrines of the Christian faith. Throughout history, the church has maintained that Jesus Christ, the word from eternity, is both fully God and fully man. Totally human, totally divine, two natures united in one person. Let's be clear about what we mean by that. They are two natures genuinely united in one person, but they are not two natures confused in one person. Okay? I think John Calvin offers some helpful clarity here. According to Calvin, when it is said that the word was made flesh, we must not understand it as if he were either changed into flesh or confusedly intermingled with flesh, but that he made choice of the virgin's womb as a temple in which he might dwell. For we maintain, Calvin continues, that the divinity was so conjoined and united with the humanity that the entire properties of each nature remain entire. And yet the two natures constitute only one Christ. So maybe, maybe you're like, what does that mean? <laughs> um, I had to read it a couple times too. Um, Calvin is saying that the word can become flesh without any change to his divine nature and its attributes. He remains fully God even as he becomes fully man. This is what we see in Colossians 2.9. It says, in Jesus Christ, in him, the whole fullness of deity, not part of deity, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This means that in the incarnation, the two Natures of Christ remain whole. They remain entire. Neither robs the other of anything else. His divine nature does not bring up his human nature. His human nature does not bring down his divine nature. This makes me think of something that is said in the movie The Sandlot. Has anybody ever 
Seen the movie The Sandlot? Did you watch this when you were a kid? Some of you are like, fool, I watched it last week. That movie's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> In The Sandlot, they say of Babe Ruth that he was less than a god, but more than a man. Now, that's fine for the great Bambino. But to say that of Jesus Christ would be a huge mistake. It would be way off. Our Lord does not become a little less divine in order to become human. No, he is two complete natures, and neither of his natures changes the other. So we can say that even as he becomes flesh, Jesus keeps his divine attributes, and that includes his immutability. This is why it says in the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His divine nature, even as it indwelled a frail human body, a body that could get sick, a body that could get tired, a body that could get hungry, a body that could be crucified. Even as Jesus indwelled that body, his divine nature remained unchanged. He is immutable. So why does this matter? Why do we need to hear this today? Well, it matters because it means that God the immutable became physically present in the human experience. In this ever-changing world where nothing feels secure, where nothing feels stable, the only one who is eternally stable, the only one who does not change, came down and he met with us face to face. He entered into our situation in the most meaningful way possible so that he could be the Savior we need. The Savior who not only loves us, but who understands what it's like to be one of us. He knows what it's like to navigate a world that is always changing. He experienced the vulnerability of that because he lived in a human body. At the very beginning of the letter of 1 John, we hear all about this. It says, that which was from the beginning, this immutable word we've been talking about, we have heard him. We have seen him with our eyes. We have looked upon him and touched him with our hands. And John says, we're telling you all about this so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Just notice all the sensory language that John is using there. The immutable word became seeable, hearable, touchable. The one who was before all worlds existed entered into our world so that we might truly know him. And so today we come to the communion table, as we do every week. And we come in order to know Jesus the physical elements at the table. We experience his presence through what can be seen and tasted and touched. This is a meal of glory, friends, and it is all because Jesus entered into our world physically. So that by faith, we can, we can take the bread in our hands and we can truly know the immutable God. We can take the cup in our hands by faith and we can know that the unchanging Lord is present to us. And this is true for everyone who believes in him, for everyone who has faith. Which means that if you've not believed, 
If you've not placed your faith in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask you to abstain from this meal. We respectfully ask for that. Not because you're not welcome at church today. You're always welcome at church. But we ask you not to come for no other reason than that this meal doesn't mean to you what it means to us. To, to us, this is a life-giving meal. But to you, this is just bread and juice from the store. So instead of coming to the table, we want to invite you to come to Jesus. Come to the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Turn away from the world, turn away from your sin, and turn toward Jesus Christ. Place yourself under his loving care, the care of one who never changes. For those of us who have believed and who are walking with the Lord, we want to invite you to come to the table. You can come down the aisle on this side of the room. You can get your hand sanitizer here, walk across to the, the table over here, and head back to your seat with the elements. We want to ask you to come. Come and truly know God the immutable. Come and experience the one who is the same yesterday, today, forevermore. Let me pray for us real quick, and then we'll come take the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we confess that from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There is no shadow of turning in you. There is no variation due to any change. In your nature and character and being, you are immutable. And Lord, that is what we need. Things in this world, things in our lives are constantly changing. They're constantly shifting. And we need to be able to come to one who is unchanging, who is unshifting. So Lord, we come to you today and we ask that you would meet with us truly. Nourish our hearts through the communion we experience with you right now. God, as we've said, this is a meal that gives life. This is a meal through which you are uniquely present to us. And so, Lord, I pray as we come in faith, that, that would truly be what we know is true. That you are present here and now. Bless the church. Bless anyone under the sound of my voice who is far from you. I pray that you would draw them near here and now in this moment. Help Emmaus know how we can be an encouragement those who are distant from you. Lord, help us to show them that you are not distant. You are not the God who is far off. You are the God who cares for us, the God who is the same yesterday, today. Pray all these things in your name. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.